Good evening, cool cats and kittens. It's your slightly less than estimable host, Scott Newman, here to bring you part two of the David Samuels interview. Last week, we talked about the three most powerful words in the English language, as well as a host of other topics. And this week, we bring to you a part of the interview with David Samuels, where he talks about a quiet revolution silently engulfing all of us. This one is definitely worth a listen, and no, you do not need to have listened to last week's episode in order to get the full context. Happy listening. All right, so one one thing you seem to be really interested in lightly um, is how technology and machines have been used to sort of perpetuate political oligopolies ruled by bureaucratic oligarchs. So what specific technologies are you referring to here, and how do you think this has played out in the American cultural arena? Well, I think we've seen the rise of these new systems that are altering every aspect of social life, economic life, uh, the way we consume information, the way we understand ourselves and our relation to uh, the social whole. And I think it's a profound revolution on a par with the Gutenberg revolution over 500 years ago. Uh, I think we're in the beginning stages of that revolution, which really impacted people's lives starting in the 1990s. And I think we're in a very strange situation right now where we are stuck with the language of the last revolution, the press, printing, newspapers, magazines, the self, (laughs) Uh, all of these constructs that have a historical origin in the printing press and the invention of, you know, mirrors, uh, things that allowed us to see ourselves. And we have new equivalents of those technologies today. Uh, The iPhone being a great example, it's a printing press. Uh, that can reach, you know, in theory, the entire planet instantaneously. Uh, It's also a handheld mirror in which we look at ourselves and view the world through this box. The difference, of course, between this revolution and the revolution of 500-odd years ago is that these devices are all networked to each other, mm. <laughs> which was very much not the case uh, 500 years ago. And so if the Gutenberg revolution led to an explosion of individual subjectivity and the deepening of the sense that we were individuals with our own private thoughts and passions and attachments. It let us see and hear ourselves for the first time, really, for most of humanity. This revolution seems to be doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. It's a return to a almost medieval kind of consciousness uh, sped up 
And what do you, what do you mean by because, that? I mean, think of the act of reading, for example. Reading is a technology. Uh, there's obviously the technology of the printing press that allows you to reproduce a text and diffuse it widely. But that text also comes with a set of cultural instructions. You read in private. Uh, your lips don't move. <laughs> People learn how to read. That was the foundation of education throughout the West for 500 years, was teaching children to read uh, first at a simple level and then in more sophisticated ways. But the act of reading was a private act, mm -hmm. uh, unlike having a priest in a church read aloud to the congregation in a setting that defined how they should think about what mm -hmm. they read, surrounded by their neighbors all looking at, e at them mm -hmm. <laughs> to make sure that everybody had the correct thoughts at the right time. That's what's happening now. Correct. I think that that's what these platforms are doing. They're telling us that you're being watched all the time by your peers, that there are correct ways to respond, that there are punishments for not responding correctly. This private space that was sort of elaborately constructed over centuries and which, you know, when we talk about individual consciousness, we're often thinking of a literary consciousness or something that's akin to that, that communion with ourselves or the communion with the author, uh, which was a very unique kind of space that hadn't existed before, I think is now uh, seriously threatened and in the process of being largely overcome, obliterated by the sort of impinging force of mass judgment, criticism, yeah. you know, deplatforming, censorship. Uh, it takes place on the platforms themselves. But of course, the most serious kind of censorship is the censorship that takes place inside of people's heads. Um, where they're trained uh, to have proper responses uh, mm -hmm. in this Pavlovian kind of way. And none of these processes take place in a vacuum. Uh, these companies are extremely large, monopolistic entities. Just, just to be clear, we're talking about you know Facebook and affiliated Facebook, platforms. Google, Apple is its own world, the little microcosm of Twitter for particular classes of people. Like journalists um, like you and me. <laughs> yeah, I don't really pay much attention to social media, which takes effort. Uh, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I made a choice very early. You know, as a writer, I thought, my job and the thing that was unique about me was that I had my own subjectivity and my own perceptions, and it was my responsibility to be clear about 
what those were and to find language where I could express uh, those and communicate them to other people. I felt first the world of the internet, then especially the world of social media, uh, it was clearly a threat uh, to that kind of individual consciousness. And I didn't want that software in my head. Yeah. Uh, now, people send me stuff all the time and say, hey, you know, go check out this link or this person said something interesting. And it's not like I don't click on those, you know, links a dozen times a day. But that's different from participating. Being involved yourself, yeah, and being an yeah, active participant. Or, yeah, uh, it's, it's something I try to limit uh, the amount of time I spend looking at it. And I try, in, in order to keep my own mental positioning outside of that world as completely as possible. I think that's rare these days, but... Uh... It's it's nice to know that there are, are some people out there who haven't succumbed. I certainly have. I'm I'm on social media all the time, probably too much. But you know, it's it's interesting you bring up this concept of the the private sphere really being infringed upon. It it made me think of Dangerous Liaisons, the the famous French um, epistolary novel, and you know the. One of the main themes in it anyway was this concept of in 18th century France, you had your private life and then you had your public life. And in public, you know, particularly men, well, women as well, you know, were meant to be honorable. Honor was like a big thing. L'honneur et vertu, like, you know, was this all about who you are, whereas you could do all of these ungodly things in private. But as long as you remained your, uh, you retained your external honor, you know, Everything was okay, and this this book was sort of it assailed this this divide between the the dirty private lives and the picture perfect public lives. And I think you know we see, and I, I I certainly don't think there's anything good about keeping your your dirty deeds in in a closet somewhere in private. But on the other hand, it it just reminds me of of what's going on today with with the infringement of the private sphere. There's no private sphere. For anything, um, and I think that's when when it becomes a problem. And this sort of merging of the two, perhaps, has been going on for a long time. But that technology, in particular, um, the kinds of technology that we have now, has exacerbated it to the extent that there is almost no private sphere at all anymore. It's impossible to exist privately. I think that's an ideological goal of the corporations and governments that control these spaces. They want to convince you that there's no such thing as a private life, that private life is a sinkhole of corruption, that you have no right to it, that it's immoral. Uh, those are totalitarian demands. I'd note that they actually go beyond the ambitions of the 20th century totalitarian systems. Uh, my family is from the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union. The Soviet system and my family were 
good communists for a while. The Soviet system demanded uh, ideological conformity. It demanded public participation in the party and in party activities and rights. It, interestingly, did not try to colonize uh, the insides of people's heads in the way that these platforms, the people who run them, uh, the people who live on them, try to do now. Uh, in fact, Soviet education was, in a funny way, uh, the Soviet system sought the imprimatur of uh, Pushkin and Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, and they published classic Russian novels in fine editions, and uh, they allowed people to listen to music, and they subsidized it. Uh, there was the idea that you wanted to create a sphere that was separate uh, from politics, if only to strengthen the system itself so that people didn't feel squeezed past the point that they could uh, endure control. Uh, there was some realm uh, that was a political uh, and where you stay if you stayed within certain bounds you were free of a certain kind of surveillance and criticism I don't think that's true now in these systems I think that they aspire not just to this sort of panopticon where you know a jailer, <laughs> is watching everybody, but something that's even more horrible, which is that each of the prisoners is simultaneously the prisoner and the jailer. Uh, everybody's yeah. watching everybody else. Right. It's sort of like your neighbor is your surveillant kind of thing. I guess just going, just stepping back for one second, sure, there probably was you know, um, a certain degree of the ability to think think for yourself, even if not to you know act publicly on those thoughts in the Soviet Union, but even within the private sphere, you know, I think of the example of Solzhenitsyn, um, Alexandra Solzhenitsyn, who criticized Stalin in a private letter to a friend and sent off to a gulag. He was one of thousands. Just to be clear, I think is the line that you're drawing sort of that within the Soviet Union, you know, the, obviously you had to do things within certain boundaries. Criticizing Stalin was probably off the cards, regardless of whether it was in private or not. Um, but is the difference now that while in some of these horrible totalitarian regimes of the 20th century, you could at least think for yourself, even if not act for yourself, whereas now it's become a sort of insidious, creeping and erosion into the variability to think for yourself to the point that people themselves, you know, they, they don't even know that they're subjects in an experiment. They don't know that they're yeah. both the jailer and the prisoner. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, the classic Soviet mentality was doublethink. You thought one thing in private, and you said another thing in public. And if you had small children, you had to be careful <laughs> that your children did not repeat uh, what you said in private 
in public, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> that right. could cause problems for for them and for you. Uh, except at the height of you know Stalin's insanity, there was an idea that you don't bother us, and there's a point past which we won't bother you. So yes, if you want to print a novel that shows Stalin to be a monster, we're not going to let you print that. And if it's 1935, we'll send you to the gulag. And if you declare that in, you know, you'd like to emigrate to the state of Israel and hold a placard in the middle of Moscow, then we're going to put you in a psychiatric hospital because you're nuts. But if you want to go out to your country house and read Tolstoy <laughs> and, you know, listen to Tchaikovsky records and talk to your friends and your wife about how the system is a load of shit, um, you're free to have those thoughts. Right. Because who can bother people at that level? Uh, but that's exactly the aspiration of this current system is that we will minutely examine and track and surveil uh, every thought uh, that you have anywhere, and we will hold you uh, accountable uh, for it and take away your job 20 years later. <laughs> and yeah. uh, that there's actually no end to the ambition to control and judge and punish others because you're not actually, you don't actually have ownership of what's inside your head. Mm. And that's an ambition that I think comes along with the technology and exceeds uh, the totalitarian ambitions of the 20th century, it, I find it fundamentally repulsive. Mm, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it seems that, or a, a lot of times anyway, when people think of mass surveillance and the national security state, they, they point to the right, they point at uh, the United States response to the Iraq war, the Patriot Act, all this kind of stuff. And on the other hand, a lot of the ideological hegemony, cultural conformity, things in that arena tend to be attributed to the left. Um, so I guess I'm not really, you know, in the business of playing a blame game here. Um, so I guess I would ask where, you know, where did all of this begin? Did did technology exacerbate what was there before or did, you know, did this thing arise sort of on its own? And if it did, was it, you know, who, who started this? Was this, you know, Bush or was it, you know, is it left, right, center? Where, where did this come from, according to David Samuel? It's a great question. I preface it by saying that I really don't pay any attention to the words right and left anymore. Uh, I haven't for, you know, probably the last decade. Uh, I think that those terms have reversed enough of the supposedly foundational principles, uh, defining principles uh, of each of those tendencies that I don't see them as meaningful. Mm. Where did it come from? You know, it's all of the above. Uh, the Patriot well, Act was time, terrible. Timeline here, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the 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 what I would say, stepping back for a moment, you know, and again, uh, I may be different from some of my peers, and certainly writers who are younger than me at this point, because I'm not on social media. I don't allow my head 
to exist in that space. Um, I'm also different in that I'm trained as a historian. I That training still structures the way I look at the world. Um, and not just a historian. My, my background was a Marxist background. The thing that I took away from Marx, which I think was his central uh, and profound uh, insight, was that technology uh, shapes culture. Um, and, you know, I think to me, everything else <laughs> Marx wrote is uh, uh, a gloss uh, on that central insight. Uh, he defined it as the means of production, uh, but that's technology. So where does this come from? It comes from technology. <laughs> uh, everything else is downstream from that. Uh, technology has a logic of its own. Uh, it implies things that human minds will realize uh, within especially a capitalist system which incentivizes uh, the development of those technologies and putting them to particular sets of uses, i.e. profitable uses. Once these technologies existed, uh, the technology, say, to collect metadata <laughs> uh, on everybody's phone calls and emails, then that was going to happen. <laughs> and the government was going to make it legal. And once it was going to do that, it was going to acquire the capacity to listen to those calls and search them for keywords without a warrant. And they did that. That was the Bush years. Uh, once the capacity became available. I once went back into J. Edgar Hoover's files, most of which are missing <laughs> from, from his private safe, but he, but a bunch of key documents uh, still do exist. And the things that were most precious to Hoover were the written letters that he saved from, I think, uh, what beginning in the uh, late 1920s uh, and extending until 1970, so it's over a 50-year period, uh, from at least you know seven different attorney generals of the United States, giving him explicit permission to wiretap uh, mm. people's phone calls, and the fact that Hoover kept these letters in his private safe shows how unusual he knew that authority to be within the American, the Anglo-American tradition for the government to listen in on people's private phone calls, to go into their home, to wiretap their phones, to listen to every aspect of their private communications is fundamentally at odds uh, with the U.S. Constitution, and Hoover knew that. And so he made very sure <laughs> to keep those pieces of paper uh, decade after decade in a safe so no one could say that he was a monster uh, who had done something fundamentally illegal. Uh, now, contrast that with the Bush administration 
spying on and collecting information about the private communications of millions of people. And, of course, providing assurances about the way that information was going to be used, which we know to be false. And the uh, heads of American intelligence organizations, uh, James Clapper, John Brennan, getting in front of the U.S. Congress and lying uh, under oath uh, about what they collected and how they used it. And nobody went to prison for that because by the time that happened during the Obama presidency, we had all come to understand that these machines and the way that they were being used had fundamentally changed our assumptions about what was private and how easy it was to access that uh, kind of communication. And because we live in a capitalist society, uh, those were no longer our communications. They, they belonged to the companies uh, because we had consented to the companies owning this material as a condition of uh, using. Nobody forces you to be on Facebook uh, or to, you know, use your iPhone. You consent to whatever the corporation, you know, says. And they say that we own what is essentially large parts of people's brain. So it's a willing concession. I don't think it's willing. You, you elect to use, I choose to use social media. Do you? That's a good, okay. I, yeah, no, I mean, fair enough. If the public sphere, if the means of communicating with your peers, with your family is, you know, are these platforms, then as a social being, you don't feel yourself to have that much choice. Now, my 16-year-old son, maybe because he's my son, uh, has a great suspicion of and dislike for these platforms. Uh, and he doesn't have an iPhone, even though he's 16. And he uses email, but he's not on social media. And he communicates with his peers in person when he sees them. But he's a freak, uh, just like I am. <laughs> That's good. I think just taking a step back, I just want to be clear here about the parallels between some of the totalitarian regimes. Let's you could talk about Trujillo's secret police or, you know, let's let's just use the example of, of the Soviet Union. It's one we're both somewhat familiar with, perhaps you because of your family more, more so than me. The kind of spying infringement into people's private lives that was going on in some of these communist uh, or totalitarian regimes in the 20th century is not the same kind that's going on today, I think you're saying, for two reasons. First of all, we have new technologies that enable even more vociferous spying today. And second of all, it's what, what what's happening in the West today is antithetical to the values on which many of our American, Australian, British, whatever governments were founded. And so talk to me a little bit about the difference in the surveillance between totalitarian regimes of the 20th century and very late 20th century, 21st century spying that we see nowadays, both in practice and like 
ideologically? Look, at the most basic level, because people have a habit of willfully mishearing <laughs> and misinterpreting uh, these kinds of statements, uh, there are no gulags. We don't have secret policemen that drag you off to jail and torture you. Those were all real things. No one is sent in to live in a penal camp, right? But that, with the exception of the Stalinist terror, which was a very discreet period in the Soviet Union, that was not the horror <laughs> that was you particular to the life of an average citizen of a communist country. The horror was the sort of enforced idiocy uh, and stupidity and on the lies of public life, being forced to publicly recite these very stupid untruths and to have them repeated ad nauseum in newspapers, in speeches, and for those statements to be universally acclaimed as insightful, true. There's something very nauseating about being a sentient person and being confronted with publicly enforced lies. But there wasn't the demand in most places and times that you spend your private time <laughs> repeating public lies or mm. that you believe the public lies. That was a bridge too far <laughs> for most communist regimes because everybody knew that there was a great deal of hypocrisy <laughs> in the system. And in fact, private life was a necessary safety valve to keep people publicly compliant. This new system, because of the potentials inherent in the technology and the fact that these technologies effortlessly record the minute fluctuations of people's thought and give over ownership <laughs> of all of that mind space mm. to private corporations and to the governments that legalize, incentivize, support, purchase <laughs> all of that information from these companies you have this historically new ability to get inside people's heads and to enforce right think on them by eliminating the idea of private life and making their private lives and thoughts essentially public because they live their private lives on these platforms, which are public <laughs> mm. and are owned uh, by 
corporations. And so you don't have this model of an authoritarian state and its secret police digging into people's lives and punishing them and sending them to the gulag. Instead, you have something that to me, from certain angles, is more horrifying, which is the destruction of the space in which we knew ourselves to be human, to be individuals. This space that was carefully cultivated and built up over 500 years of human history and which was whose scope was expanded uh, to include women, to include people of wildly different cultures, uh, all the rest of it based on a premise of a fundamental shared humanity, which in turn was rooted in the idea that each of us is a separate human being with our own uh, subjective thoughts, feelings, et cetera, et cetera, all of which are the stuff of private life. Uh, I think that the idea of the human is fundamentally grounded in these ideas of privacy, uh, in the separation of the private and the public uh, spheres. And the attempt by incredibly powerful actors, powerful because they're armed with sort of monopoly, corporate power, government power, and incredibly powerful technologies to obliterate the private sphere is a fundamental threat to the idea of the human, uh, which I think has been the most valuable and sustaining and worthwhile sort of animating idea of a host of human achievements, whether you look at those as political achievements, aesthetic achievements, what we value about what human beings have done and produced in the last 500 years rests in the realization of this idea of the human. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think what we're finding now is that this idea of the human, which we took for granted and which we universalized, itself is a historically rooted concept (laughs) that had a beginning. Mm -hmm. It had a flourishing. What do you mean, the beginning in the 17th century? No. uh, I mean, this is a fascinating conversation Where does the idea of the human come from? I think what you're talking about, the sort of enlightened post-Gutenberg printing press human individual type thing, is that the idea? Yes. You know, if you wanted to know where does that idea come from, that idea has, has roots that go back, whatever. But in terms of the flourishing of that idea... in its, you know, what's called its modern incarnation. Mm. Uh, Yeah, I think you're looking at the invention of the printing press. I think you're looking at the invention of the handheld mirror, uh, Mm. which may seem a lot more trivial than the printing press, uh, but it's not. 
Uh, it allowed people to look and see a reflection, an accurate reflection of their own faces. 